Hi, and welcome to another of our Room and Room podcast episodes where we're going to be talking about some more stuff to do with ruminant nutrition. Now, this is one of a series of podcast episodes with a decidedly New Zealand focus on the well-being and performance of ruminants on our local pastures, our forage crops and supplementary feeds. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand-based veterinarian and ruminant nutritionist working out of Kimihir Research Centre at Lincoln in Canterbury. Well, enough of hearing from me. In this episode, we're joined by a really well-known fellow New Zealand veterinarian, Andrew Dowling. Now, for many of you listeners from New Zealand, Andrew will not need much of an introduction because he's very well uh, known throughout New Zealand agribusiness. And with his expertise in all things to do with animal health, nutrition, and particularly some internal parasites, we're going to welcome Andrew to tell us all about things to do with animals grazing forage crops and other feeds through the summer months of the year. So, well, welcome, Andrew, firstly, and thanks for taking time to join us today. You're a very busy guy to track down uh, and we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, so especially grateful for your time. I guess for those that don't know you, Andrew, are you able to give us a bit of a a background about yourself, like uh, farming's been in your blood for a very long time, as has uh, vetting in your career? I guess, first off, go for it, Andrew. Give us a bit of a background all about you. Yeah, thanks, um, Charlotte, and thanks very much for the invitation to be able to um, yeah to, to to have a little chat with you here on on your room and room. It's a great way of getting um, some great messages out to farmers, and um, I've always really enjoyed throughout my career that that opportunity to take a bit of science or a bit of knowledge and interpret into a way that farmers um, can you know can utilise on their farms. So yeah, I come from a sheep farm down in Ranfield in central Otago and my brother's still on the farm down there so did my vet degree up at Massey as you did um, and then I went and worked up in Wairoa in northern Hawke's Bay and it was a real shock to me to go from an area with very little feed and big fat sheep to an area with grass coming over the fence and some pretty struggling sheep it would be a fair way to put it and it just showed to me that having a lot of feed actually wasn't the answer um, so yeah in my career that's that's been important um, yeah, I was going to become a, um, I think it was going to be a motor mechanic or a stock agent, I think, when I was younger, and my <laughs> ag teacher suggested being a vet, and my dad was like, well, what do vets do? <laughs> we never had them. <laughs> I think, um, Chris Mulvaney was, was our vet when I was younger, um, and he was about an hour and a half away, so we just didn't use him. So yeah, he was quite confused. Um, so yeah, I've, but I've, I've enjoyed my veterinary career, just, just getting on farm and helping farmers, um. Did a lot, yeah, with trace elements. Um, but certainly, yeah, the parasite game has been an important one recently, particularly with the drench resistance we're seeing. And looking at ways farmers can use their skills in farm management and stock management to manage these parasites, again, rather than trying to control them, as we've done with drugs for so long. And it's really shown up that farmers are clever and they and understand a lot of things and do a lot of things for the right reason, but maybe not know totally why. But they're very, very adaptable and are really enjoying explaining concepts as they have worm control and then watching them put that into a program on their farm. You know, so that's been good. So I, uh, I've been with Reichens now for 14 years um, in this role and it's it's been great because it 
gives me the opportunity to not just look at the sick animals, but to, well, from a production perspective, identify things in a farm that may be a shortage of feed and involve someone else in the business who can help them out, you know, to, to try and see what the solutions are. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed being able to extend my, I suppose, or you know, add my veterinary knowledge into a team that can help that farmer out. Yeah, and you've done a very good job of it, and you've got a strong reputation for that, Andrew, and it's very much about uh, selling a single product from an entomintic point of view, but rather to a whole systems, which is where, as an industry, we all need to be heading, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I'm not too afraid to put an opinion forward either, <laughs> which can help sometimes. <laughs> we, we need people like yourself with good, strong opinions in this area. It's certainly very fo- uh, future-focused. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, you you say that uh, you're very much a champion of making things simple on farm, and I couldn't agree more. You do a great job of that. And notwithstanding um, that you're currently about to complete your PhD, tell us a bit more about that. PhD is a pretty good effort for someone that's very boots-on farm-level person. Yes, it um, sounded like a good idea five years ago, and it's been a big challenge. So um, really enjoyed reconnecting with the science again. That's been great. So... I'm looking at the impact that liver fluke have on dairy cows on the west coast of the South Island. So, yeah, that, that's been really interesting. Um, but my aim is to finish up by the end of this year. So I've said it now on a podcast, so it's got to happen. <laughs> I've got to hold myself <laughs> to that because it needs finishing. But, yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just amazing. You do something, you get back into science, you spend time at ag research at Massey and places like that, and you really – appreciate the amount of work that's going on in the background and some of the science that's going on. You know, we've got an amazing amount of knowledge in New Zealand and we've done a lot of work, a lot of studies, but we've forgotten a lot of those, the um, the research and a lot of the, the findings. And it's been good to go back and just remember some of that stuff and be able to use it on farms again. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were to wrap up five years of your life of blood, sweat and tears with your PhD, what what's the take homes for dairy farmers who may be listening in from the west coast of the South Island around liver fluke? Yeah, as they know, there's a lot of liver fluke there, but I think on my initial findings, I'd say they've got uh, feed is still a bigger issue than liver fluke, and it looks to me uh, from from what we've seen so far is liver fluke is going to be a constant challenge for them down there. Um, so I don't think they're ever going to get rid of it. So they've got to. Uh, look at other ways of making life easier for their cows. And I, yeah, like with most things, Charlotte, proper nutrition is still going to be our best saviour to most things. You know, I think, yeah, I do think the liver fluke is just going to be a bit of a burden. on and um, uh, Music music yeah. to our ears, Andrew. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, well, we'll look forward to lots of papers that you're going to publish, no doubt. But more importantly, <laughs> we'll look forward to you um, spreading the word about liver fluke on farm and your very practical down-to-earth manner. And speaking of your practical down-to-earth manner, we've we've promised the listeners that we're going to um, ask of you to tell us all about some of your experiences and your extensive time spent in Wairoa, uh, Tai Happy, and, and then more re- well, recently 14 years of Peter G. Wrightson around animal health aspects when we're looking at, uh, I suppose, particularly young stock, isn't it, through uh, the mm. summer months of the year, because we're recording this now, and well, we're almost the end of October. Um, summer crops are going in the ground or gone in the ground. What are some things that some of our listeners need to be thinking about, given your focus is very much on the, the fence at the top of the cliff uh, and not the bottom? Yeah, yeah certainly throughout my, my my veterinary agricultural career, Charlotte, the um, 
this development of we call them novel forages, summer crops, um, has come a long way, and they certainly are an amazing way of getting a very high quality feed into animals. And even for the fact that you know when you've put that crop in, you you should know what animals it's designated for, so it's there for them. You don't just inadvertently eat it with the ewes or put some cows in on it. So that's been great, and it's it's been wonderful to see um, a start with. You know, we now have got things that can be multi-grazed, they last longer, they're more predictable, and we've gotten used to them. Um, and I, so they've been a great tool. But I think in the early days, we we were we didn't want to push farmers the way farmers manage them because it might put them off actually utilising this good feed. Now that we've got this good feed and farmers are used to growing them, I think we've got to be a bit more picky on how we graze them and how we manage them to actually get the best out of the animals because it is a real change in their diet. It, it looks different. It's a funny looking thing you've stuck them in front of. You go from ryegrass to chicory, you'd wonder what you'd walked into if you're a lamb. It's just odd. It looks odd, it tastes odd, it smells odd. Then once you learn to eat it, you're away. But there is that that change. You know, so it's there that they are a great tool we've got. Um, this spring has certainly been problematic for getting them in the ground. Uh, it's been cold, it's it's wet. And sometimes farmers are having to change the choice they're putting in too if they haven't been able to get the seed they want. So we're just having to, at the moment, um, be a bit nimble on our feet and talking with the agronomist, you know, if someone can't get a, a certain seed is saying, well, what else um, could it be substituted with? And the number one question is always, well, what was the first crop going to feed anyway? You know, and, and I think we've got to keep that in mind because I think certainly within, um, you know, the the offers the all the products you've got an offer there, Charlotte, you know, they really do have some quite specialist fits, some of them. And that's I think farmers have got to really understand what they want to achieve with it. And from there we go backwards and say, okay, well therefore then what do we grow? So it's um it's a different feed. Um I think that transition onto it is very important. And we we um underestimate that. Sheep are pretty tolerant, but just because they didn't die doesn't mean they actually transitioned well. Yeah, you know, cattle are a lot more sensitive to that change. Um, but we we can we can really knock a lot of live weight off our animals or our lambs in that first couple of weeks if we don't transition them well. And an analogy I was thinking of um, was I'm I've got a bike race this weekend. I'm going to be pedaling for seven to eight hours, um, and we're climbing three thousand meters. So it's going to be a a pretty big challenge for me. And so nutritionally, I've really had to um, to look at look at what I do and you know and get myself set up for it. Now. They really stress in all the nutrition training is don't try something new in the race. So if you want to take some of those high energy gels, then try them in the weeks before the race. Because the last thing you want to do is take them and then either be throwing up on the side of the track or running down to the trees, trying to relieve yourself <laughs> oh. in a hell of a hurry. <laughs> so they say both things are relatively embarrassing <laughs> yeah. and no fun. So when we put that's, our animals that's true, into these quite crops, right. <laughs> yeah. So and we do this to our animals. We we bring them down onto often from some dry country. You might buy some store lambs and you put them onto a really high quality feed. It's, it's, you're totally changing their diet. Well, no wonder we get some diarrhea. No wonder we get some animals that don't want to eat it, um, mm. that lose, lose condition. And that can be pretty severe loss of condition in those first couple of weeks. So, but there are things we can do to make that easier for them. And I think, um, you know, just adding some fiber in there does help. And I know we get away with not doing it. But it doesn't mean it's the best thing to do. And the people who do, you know, put some fiber out there with it's just a 
dropping a bale of um, hay or bale of, um, yeah, or even straw, you know, next to the water trough for them to nibble on, you'll be amazed at how much of that they eat. And it just keeps them happy, keeps their gut happy, and away they go. And just like us, when your gut is feeling happy, you're happy to go out and eat more. Yeah, so I think we've just got to, those, those what, little what things that make a difference. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Look, that's that's very um, wise advice, Andrew. In terms of the sheep or cattle scenario, you know, people getting away with stuff, what do you see out and about? Do people get away with more with lambs of transitioning than cattle? Or what's your some of your take-homes? <laughs> yeah, I think if people don't... But yeah, I think we get away with more with lambs, but not as much as we think we do. When you've got a mob of 500 mm. lambs, you could have 20 or 30 lambs in there that are really struggling, but you just don't notice them. They're hidden amongst the crowd. Mm. Whereas if you put 50 heifers on there, you tend to notice things. So I, uh, yes, I think we, we can get away with more in that we don't have the deaths, but I think production-wise, no, we can still um, do a lot of damage in that period. Absolutely. So with transitioning, how long do you allow, um, you know, for sheep and cattle to transition onto some of these novel crops if they've come off some harder country, as you say, store store lambs or store cattle coming in? Yeah, and that's, that's a good one. Um, often you, if you've bought them in to finish them, you, you haven't got any other feed for them. You've put the specialist forage in, so that's it. But if you could start them off and in, in the paddock, if there's a bit of a, a ridge or, you know, a... Um, a hillside or something that's got some just some grass on that you didn't cultivate, that certainly helps them, I think. I think that that's a good thing. If you can rock them off and on, even you know, for a week, it yes, it's a bit more work, but the benefits do pay. I think the other thing, um, and we've talked about this in the past with um with the photosensitization, sensor sensitivities, um, rape scold, is training them to eat it. So even if you can fence off that first part of the paddock and make them eat the whole plant to give them an idea of what it is, rather than wandering around the paddock just eating the choicest bits. Now, if you if we um, go into the lolly store and you go around and all you're doing is eating the, the, the best, sweetest lollies all the time, you're going to get a sore stomach more quickly than if you consider if you're made to eat some of the harder sweets as well that take a bit longer for you to chew through or to suck on, and it slows you down. So... I think yeah, you know, it's. I know it's difficult to transition lambs um, because they they don't want to eat it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So if you can do it over a week, it's it's um, it's better than not doing it. Um, sometimes we've got yeah some old grass in the paddock, then that can add some um, well be a good source of fibre for them. And if you can't do that, then I would try and you know put an electric fence up for the first part of the break just to teach them how to eat it, eat that whole plant to get more of a balanced diet. And I think you certainly do see those benefits. Not so much in the, the top lambs will still be the top lambs, but you don't get the tail end. And they're the annoying ones. You know, those ones you yeah. go in two or three weeks later and you suddenly realise they're actually, they're not looking too good. And they may have lost you know, anything up to five kilos. Yeah, indeed. And I, I guess that's very much about the performance aspect of it, Andrew. Um, Clearly, this transition period, uh, you know, when when you and I talk to to farmers who may be a little disappointed with how those particularly the tail end lambs mm. are looking, what are some of the health things that we should be looking at standing in the paddock? If you're looking at some of these ones that look like they've just lost the weight, as you say, are there sort of health specific things that mm -hmm. you recommend when you're spending time both with 
um, your own team, PGW team, but also with farmers? What are the health things we should be yeah. thinking about during this transition time? Yes. Um, I, my number one is actually, are they getting enough? <laughs> when you look at that, out there in that mob, yes. are they actually getting as much as you think they are? <laughs> because it may not be growing, you may not have as much feed as you want. That would be number one. Mm. Um, Health-wise, water. I think we underestimate how much water these animals need. Um, yes. And if they're short of water, they won't consume as much you know they, they haven't got it. the the rumen's a big brewing vat if you don't have enough liquid in that vat you can't just keep adding more to it to get it to ferment anymore so that knocks them back so i think we do underestimate the value of cool clean water um some of these troughs get pretty hot and when your run, water's running into them if the uh, pipes are, are buried buried quite shallowly or even lying on top of the ground they can get pretty hot and, and lambs just don't want to drink it. So that would be two. Um, do you have enough, enough feed there? Um, and then the water, that would be, that'd be the major things they'd be looking at. And just and realising, you know, if the lambs, and if they're now eating, but they've lost condition, well, they've picked up, but it's thinking about for the next group, how could we avoid that real loss of um, live weight gain in that period? Yes, absolutely. Mm. So if someone's got lambs going on in the next sort of 10 to 14 days, they're still on pasture, what's your recommendations around um, prevention of clostridial disease and yeah. what do people need to have on hand, good, ready to go, but well before these lambs go on? Yeah, so there's, a, there's a few health things out there and clostridial diseases, Charlotte, certainly would be um, number one. So and, and out of that, pulpy kidney would be the, um, the major one. Now, um, there's a lot of talk about which vaccines to use. Um, there's plenty of them on the market. Everyone's better than the other one. To me, that as long if your vaccine just must uh, cover the five major components, of which probably kidney to me is, is the most important one, and then it's the timing of the vaccine. I think that's more important than what vaccine you use. So um, you don't get maximal protection until about two weeks after the second shot. Well, this, so for these vaccines, they're killed, so you need a sensitizer and a booster dose. Um, so it's a, about two weeks or a bit over two weeks after that booster dose, that animal is fully protected. Now, I realise for a lot of people, that just doesn't happen. They, they may get their second um, vaccination as they go on the crop. Well, that's better than nothing. So you want to set the animals up to know they're going to get their second dose as they go on. So that primary vaccination has to occur at least four to six weeks before. Now, it can be longer than that, just realising you may not be protected between those periods. But certainly we're seeing an increase of lambs being vaccinated at docking and tailing um, to give them that, that sensitisation against the clostridial diseases so that when they, when they get their booster shot to go onto the crop, they are then set up. Um, and even for someone selling store lambs, in my mind, I think they will add value to your store lamb if for the fat lamb buyer uh, who wants to buy them and finish your lambs, knowing they've already had one one dose of the vaccination makes it a lot easier for them to manage your lambs because they know with this with that second dose um, that your lambs are going to be protected quite quickly. Yeah, and um, yeah, so those clostridial deaths are, are quite an important one for us. Um, and if you've got lambs or calves dying on crops, that would be my first question is what, what is a vaccination program? And we're surprised how many animals don't get that second vaccination. You know, it just it get busy, you forget, um, it just doesn't happen. So that's a big one. 
um, nitrate toxicity. In, a, in a, this spring summer we're having at the moment, where we're not seeing a lot of sunshine, our nitrate levels could be quite high. So you want to know that before you want to graze the crop. So I'll be going in even the, like a week before you want to get into it and do your nitrate test. Um, I'd, I'd rather send, send the tests into hills and get them do the chemistry there because the little dipstick tests aren't um, calibrated for these sort of forages. Okay, so we can miss quite high levels of nitrates in them. So certainly would um would get that that checked. Um, yep, making sure your water's all all set up, it's in there, and um weeds come up a lot. Charlotte get quite a few questions mm, about them, mm. and people worry on oh, you know we might have weed your different weeds in the crop, you know, and and some of them are very toxic, but as long as a crop is doing well, stock often they don't really want to eat them. And I see more um, weed toxicities when the crop is stressed and there's not as much of it so that animals are forced to eat the weeds um, or overstocking an area and they've, they've run out of feed and then they start eating those weeds. So you find, and if you're worried, yeah, if you had some death or some ill health and you think it's weeds, well, go and have a look at the weeds and see if they've been, see if they've been eaten. And quite mm, often yes. they're not. They're not mm. particularly palatable. No, but... You see the plant there, and um, red root or amaranthus is one that certainly we're, we're weary of, but that's more um, yeah when you've when your crops failed and there's nothing else to eat. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, mm. Yeah, and all those plant things and that's those stressed crops too. If if your crop is struggling um, to grow, they do some odd things to animals. You've got a plant that's not very happy. So I suppose they're producing compounds to help look after themselves and they can make our animals quite sick. So it's, yeah, those those sort of half-failed or struggling drought crops can cause quite a few animal health issues in, in our animals. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's wise advice. And quite often, well, like as you say, animals simply don't want to eat stressed crops. Uh, wilted crops, if they haven't got secondary plant compounds, they'll, they'll, go, they'll hook into those because wilting is very tasty. But yeah, things like the brassicas will, will certainly throw up things like glucosinolates, which, you mm. know, obviously the plant's trying to save itself. I guess we can't blame the <laughs> the plant, but not so good for the lambs, hey. What else? Yeah, I mean, no, and it's funny because in, in those years too, we've got no other feed. So everyone's exactly. under pressure. That's <laughs> right. So you think, well, it's that's, that's better, than, better than nothing, hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, there's, there's all sorts of other weird and wonderful things that can um, obviously make lambs unwell in the in the heat of the summer. And quite often uh, we get questions, I know you do and, and I do also, about uh, neurological signs when animals mm. uh, change from these poorer quality pastures onto these high quality crops. Tell us all about what makes their brains go a bit weird sometimes, <laughs> apart from normal um, lambs being a bit stupid. I was going to say they are sheep. No, I think sheep are very intelligent. They're a very intelligent animal. <laughs> oh, whatever you reckon, Andrew, whatever you reckon. <laughs> they certainly love their habits. That's yes. it. They're a very habit-forming animal. <laughs> sheep there. Um, yeah, certainly um, that uh, vitamin B1 deficiency or mm. polio and cephalomalacia for a big word. That's a big um, word. It is a big word. Yeah, thiamine vitamin B1 deficiency is not uncommon in animals when we go uh, have a real change of diet, particularly going from a dry – well, I see it more going from dry feeds um, into a very lush feed. So – if we had lambs coming from an area that was, um, well, maybe not even going into a drought, just coming into a summer dry period, which is normal, so you sell your store lambs, going to a very lush green feed, the poor old rumen gets a bit upset, 
and that's um, an indication that our transition hasn't worked well. And you may see lambs seizuring in the paddock. And so they're uh, lying on their sides, paddling the head bent back. And it can look like um, the early, or the, look like the, almost the terminal stages of pulpy kidney as well, where they can also seizure. But in these animals, um, there may be some that are blind, um, a bit of head pressing that are depressed. Then that um, uh, yeah, vitamin B1 or thiamine um, can be the problem. So if you're seeing that, it can be worthwhile having or going to see your vet and seeing if you can get a bottle of that um, vitamin B1 to have on hand. Mm. You know, cause it's, but it, that to me, Charlotte, is an indication that we didn't transition those animals well. And I understand we can't always do it. Okay, but it's it just shows we've just changed their diet just too quickly. So transition, getting it right. Any other of your tips and tricks about reducing risk of the polio and cephalomalacia? I had to say that tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, um, that that would be the main one for me. It's, it's mm. just trying to get that tra- transition right because once you get through that period, they seem to be okay. Yes, I know. In, in cattle, we can see a bit of it in, in crops in the winter and just seems to pop up. You know, sometimes in, in very um. Well, I did well in lush crops, well-grown crops. Um, but in the lamb scenario, it seems to, if you're going to see it, you seem to see it early. So like everything in life, transition well. So mm. when we get into some of the, you know, the midsummer and we've got very dusty, dry conditions and maybe mm. uh, lambs are huddling, trying to avoid the, um, the, hot, the heat of the sun, particularly if they've uh, got a fair bit of wool on, feeling the heat a bit and uh, huddling under a macrocarpa and getting a bit dusty and, what not? What are some other issues um, yeah. with lambs that are a bit stressed uh, and, and trying to seek shade in dusty areas or when you yard yeah. them, when you bring them in a drench? Yeah. What's, what's yeah. those about? Yeah, I think the old good old pneumonia. It's, um, it can be pretty tough on the lambs and it's 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 a difficult thing in that, that when, you, when you purchase lambs, you don't know the state of their lungs. Um, mm. And on the farm they come from, yes, they may have some viral pneumonia there, but because they don't truck their animals any long distance or they don't get overheated, they don't see the clinical signs. Mm. But after some transportation, um, particularly in the summer where it can get very hot on the truck, um, it's just the, the nature of the beast, um, then, yeah, any old viral pneumonia can, can become an infectious pneumonia again and, and kill our lambs. And I think it's uh, we underestimate how many lambs we lose because of it. Um, it's a difficult one because we don't have any any good remedies against it. Mm. There was a vaccine available, uh, but it didn't prove to be very effective in the New Zealand farming scene in that we couldn't vaccinate them long enough before the risk period, so it didn't prevent disease. So it's 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 hard, but yeah, when they're when they're open mouth breathing, panting, sucking in dust, that's just going to irritate the lungs. So trying to make things. Um, is easy for the lambs, certainly helps them, you know, avoiding moving them when it's really hot. Um, if you're going to be bringing them in to drench them, bring them into the yards, you know, let them settle down. You know, if, when they're open mouth breathing, that means they're hot and they're mm-hmm. going to be they're going to potentially sucking some dust into their lungs. It's going to be doing them some harm. So go away and have a cup of tea, you know, get the drench gun set up, get all your gear set up and then go and drench them. Mm-hmm. Don't be in a hurry to race them into the yards, rush them out the other end, you know, just let them settle down a bit. Um, but yeah, it can be quite heartbreaking that pneumonia when it's, um, when it's knocking lambs around and it can certainly significantly reduce their, their um, weight gains as well. So if I had lambs that have been on a crop for three or four weeks and weren't thriving, that would be pretty high on my list. Um, if I knew they're actually getting enough feed as a reason for why they're, they're not performing.
Yeah, Andrew, so uh, if people are concerned about that, they can get their vets involved, uh, as well as maybe tracking the kill sheets, looking for uh, evidence that some of the lambs have gone through the works of actually showing signs of pneumonia and maybe pleurisy too. What, yes. Is that what you yeah. recommend to monitor? What's what's your approach I, to it? I do. that. I, if anything dies and it's not too stinky, um, Charlotte, I love opening it up. I yep. think um, our pathology uh, professor at Massey, uh, Bob Jolly, said you miss oh, most yes. things by. <laughs> he, he said you miss most things by not looking, not by not knowing. So have That's a look. Quite right. Mm, mm. You know, so just get that lamb, open it up, and if its lungs are a similar colour to its liver, that's bad. It indicates what's going on. So, yeah, I think any death, as long as it's not too blown up and too stinky, it's worth having a look. You know, so yeah. you get to, an idea to know what's normal. And then on, on your kill sheets, yeah, you see it come through, especially in those lambs in the autumn. Those those rates can get up, can get pretty high. Absolutely. Mm. No, that's really good advice, Andrew. Mm. Um, I know that you've got a real, or as you said in your introduction, a, a real interest in the whole trace mineral side of animals mm. on crop. What are some of the, the things we need to be thinking about and what do you recommend for lamb finishes to be, again, potentially monitoring around mm -hmm. trace mineral nutrition? Yeah, it's good, Charlotte. Um, at the end of the day, for every farmer, you want to know what happens on your farm. You don't need to know the cobalt um, availability in the district. You want to know on your farm what it is. And nothing beats um, getting the OptiGrow test done from lambs killed off your property at the works where the liver samples are taken I mean they can look at the um, cup, copper, cobalt and selenium and it just gives you some, some really valuable information as to, to what's happening on your farm um, because it is so regional in New Zealand I mean, certainly um, uh, most all of, our, all of our drenches have got selenium but our two quarantine drenches uh, Zolvix Plus and StarTech don't okay but I mean, I wouldn't expect lands become significantly selenium deficient in that period. Um, so, yeah, so selenium's one I think we watch. Um, and and if you're going to be putting any any breeding stock in on these crops, um, you might be putting light ewes on to flush them up before tupping, um, or have ewe lambs on them on there getting ready for mating. Then iodine levels can um can get quite low. So. For those animals, I certainly would be um, giving them an iodine supplementation of either an oral product or, you know, or an in injectable, but certainly I would be um, be making sure I tick that box. Absolutely. Just taking care of any deficits across the, the crop types. But, yeah, it's, it's wise mm. advice, isn't it, to know what's going on on your farm and saying, well, someone uh, further up the valley or something had a specific issue, but uh, better mm. to know what's happening at your place. That's good advice. Well, look, you, you touched on to an area that I know that you have a particular passion in and when you're speaking about quarantine drenching. And for many people, uh, breeder finishers who have got their own lambs or those that are, that are bringing in stores, what's the story about bringing lambs in, best practice, you mentioned quarantine drenching, and bringing them onto the crop? And can they still have issues around internal parasite burdens when they've been on a crop uh, you know, for those first three, three weeks or four weeks. How yep, does it all fit yep. together, Andrew? Wow. How many answers do you want, Charlotte? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're calling your expertise. That's why yeah. we're asking you the questions. <laughs> so certainly I'm going to talk about concepts of things we want to achieve because every farm is a little bit different to their neighbour. 
And so there are some, some things we can have is um I think we've heard that the term rules to live by, and other things are sort of, of more concepts, concepts we've got to try and achieve. The what I I think one of the reasons I think why stock what do very well in these forages is they're nutritionally they're they're brilliant. They're so good and they're high in protein and that helps these animal the our animals um fight the effects of parasites. Yes. That certainly does make a difference. If you have an animal with the same parasite burden, um, eating a lower quality feed compared to a high quality uh, feed, with, particularly with a sufficient protein, the animal that's getting the, with a, the more protein-rich um, diet will mm. do better. You know, so that's, that's good. Um, had, certainly last year, Charlotte, people struggled to fatten lambs on ryegrass white clover. Mm, it mm. was partly due to parasite, it was due to um, feed quality, and a number of things were against us. So these crops, I think if you want to finish lambs, then putting in these forages, you know, really has is, is got to be considered pretty seriously. Um, we are seeing or well, becoming more aware of drench resistance in New Zealand, and that's related to the number of drenches we give. So in all of our systems, we need to reduce our reliance, our total reliance on drenching. And we need ways to do that. When you put in these these forages, you're starting with one of the lowest worm burdens you're most likely going to, going to be able to achieve. Because you've had a period where you've taken the animals off the area, so there's no more egg contamination coming on. Um, any larvae that were developing have hopefully been baked by ultraviolet light. Um, or have just run out of nutrient in the summer, they've burned all their nutrients up um, and they've died. So we're going to a relatively worm-free area and you want to be able to take advantage of that. So there's two ways to look at this. If you were going to put a crop in um, that was going to be for lamb finishing this summer and autumn and then you're going to take it out and it's going to go into cattle or you're going to put some other crop in, I'm not so worried about having that being a little hot spot for resist resistance because the larvae are unlikely to get into another animal that's going to go back onto your main farm. So, um, so in that instance, if you're buying animals in, you quarantine drench them with, and that drench has got to either be Zolvix or Startect, or Zolvix Plus or Startect, um, because we've got a fairly high percentage of farms who have got some triple drench resistance um, worms on them, and so if I gave them a triple drench coming into my crop, the only worms I bring in are the ones resistant to that drench. So if my triple drench doesn't kill them on the way in, it's not going to kill them next time either, neither will my doubles. So I've set up a situation where the, the worm burden is going to get higher in that area, the animals aren't going to perform, and I can't fix it because my normal drench doesn't work. Like, so I think it's it's... It's a concept. We've had these drenches around now for 12 years and more. Um, they are our quarantine drench. So you, you quarantine drench in. You, by doing that, you've brought in very few, hopefully no worms. You've got an area that's already got a very low worm contamination. So worms sh certainly should not be a limiting factor um, for those animals. If you want to make sure your drenches work properly, doing a fecal egg count one to two weeks after that drench um, is a good idea get those into the lab and they should all be zeros if there's any eggs in there it tells you you didn't kill those adult worms and we don't want that to happen so the quarantine drench in is um it's non-negotiable you just do it uh, we've got some um, good studies in new zealand both showing that um, with ineffective worm control over a four-month period can cost you 14 percent of the carcass value of those lambs 
and that's a lot of money. Indeed. And you, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's a lot. And you can solve that with one drench. And I know that these drenches cost maybe four to five times the price of a normal drench. But when you've got triple drench resistance and you're having to use more of them, and more importantly, having to change your farm system, you're wishing you'd done it. You know, so we want to let's keep those little buggers out. We we don't want them in there. Um, so that coming in clean, you don't have to drench again at four weeks because you don't have a, a high contamination of that area. Yes, they'll 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 graze the sidelings, they'll graze the headlands, but there's not there won't be a lot of parasites in there. So I would like to rather go out to five or six weeks and do a fecal egg count and see mm. do I need to drench. Okay. Yes, the next lot of lambs that come in, drench them in as well, and they'll go away. But we don't. We shouldn't have to be going out at a four-weekly drenching interval on these forages. Okay, we just, they just don't have the worm challenge. And doing a fecal egg count, um, you know, is a good way of seeing what's going on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So if uh, they at at uh, five to six weeks on crop that you do a fecal egg count and you are seeing your egg counts coming up and you choose to drench at that stage, what's your advice around? Well, not necessarily. Well, choice of of uh, yep. and also, what proportion of lambs would you drench? We just drench everything, or what do you yeah. advise? Yeah. So, if the, with the egg counts coming up after you've done your quarantine drench, to me, the routine drench after that is your triple combination. Um, and I, and I still um, get comments from farmers, and I understand if you use a triple drench, you're going to get triple drench resistance. Yeah, theoretically, that sounds correct, but a double combination is just two-thirds of a triple. There's nothing magic about the actives in the triple drench. The magic is making those things stay mixed together. So that's the other thing is don't mix anything with your drench. Don't go throwing a bit more minerals in there or a bit of um, bit of iodine or something because it's, it's cost them millions of dollars to develop this drench and you chucking some other stuff on that drum might bugger it up. <laughs> and it's yeah, really absolutely. important that the drench works. So don't add anything yeah. to it. Um, so after that, yeah, using using your triple combination, yeah, that that's a good one on you know do we leave a percentage of lambs undrenched? Um, that's entirely dependent on how effective your drench is, and so if you don't know that, you may not be achieving anything. And um, I know um, Dr. Dave Leatherwick from Ag Research. Anyone's heard anything about worms? Ever heard about Dave? Um, you know, he was explaining this, and if your drench is ninety nine point nine percent effective. And you left one percent of lambs undrenched to get um, a degree of refuge. If your drench was ninety-five percent effective, which we still call highly effective, you'd have to leave thirty percent of lambs undrenched to get the same degree of refuge. So, just leaving a percentage of lambs undrenched isn't the answer. Um, you want to talk to your vet or your animal health advisor, or whoever it is, is helping you with your worm management to make sure you actually. Are um, not digging a hole in which you're achieving something if you're going to leave lambs undrenched. Um, another way I like to get refugia into these areas is you will have some light ewes, some low body condition score ewes at weaning and or at shearing, and you need to get their body condition up by tupping. Um, having the, putting them in the crop with the lambs or in the rotation with the lambs and you don't drench them, so they're undrenched, they can be a really good source of refugia, worm refugia in that area. And they'll also put on some good body condition, which is what you want them to achieve. Okay, so there are other ways of doing it. So one of them is, yes, you can um, not drench all the lambs. You can drench between 0 and 100% of the mob. 
but you must know how effective your drench is to know what you're achieving. And the other way is using um, adult undrenched adult sheep, particularly those low body condition scordy, the to-dos of mixed age ewes, can be a very valuable source of refuser as well. That's really good advice, Andrew. And I think um, you're just coming back to, with the same theme again that you just you can't manage what you don't measure, and understanding what you currently have on farm is key, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, we we've got to get out of the habit of just grabbing the drench gun because we things we think things may not be quite right because it's got us where we are now, and it's not. And, and drenching isn't drenching is we can't drench our way out of drench resistance. It's not going to happen. We've got to change our farm systems and have faith in what we've talked about, doing a good transition, knowing you've got good quality feed there, the water's adequate, you've got the fibre, you know the stocks should be doing well. If they're not doing well, do a speaker leg count. Let's do some monitoring to see what's going on rather than just whipping out the drench gun. Um, so I think these things are very valuable. Now, if I do end up with some resistant parasites in that area and it's going to go into, um, you're going to fallow it over the winter or... It's going to another crop in the in the autumn, which may be grazed by cattle. I'm not as concerned. If it was something that's going to be grazed for the next two or three years, predominantly by young stock, and for that you might be fattening lambs on it this summer, um, then running some ewe lambs on it in the winter, lambing on it next next spring, and then fattening more lambs on it. I think in that situation, it's very important we we bring some um, some good drench susceptible worms into that area. And I think in those areas. Having those um, those undrenched ewes grazing through there, it's quite a not, not, I won't say easy. It's an easier way of doing it. Okay, we, we can bring bring it in, you know. So it's just having a bit of a bit of a thought about where are the worms in an area going to end up because these areas can be a hot spot for developing resistance. You don't want to take that all around the farm. And I'll yeah. hear people say, "Ah, but you've put your ewes in there, and they're going to go back out." By those ewes gaining condition, their immune system will be killing most of the worms inside them. Okay, so they're not going to have near the egg output. And also, our immune systems are awesome. The, the num uh, you have fewer of the eggs that have come out of a ewe will hatch as compared to a lamb. So there's something in the immune system of the ewe actually reduces the hatchability of those eggs and the survivability of the eggs. So, you know, our immune systems are great things. And I've heard you say it before, Charlotte. A well-fed animal has got a more functional immune system. We just, we perform better. So, yeah, that, that quality, we just might take advantage of having that high-quality feed there. It's really good messaging, Andrew, and I suppose uh, for anyone that's got cattle on as well uh, as lamb finishing, this, will the same themes apply to young cattle? It may be that, you know, dairy beef certainly on the up and up and someone's yep. brought home some 100, 120 kilo uh, dairy beef weaners that want to put them onto crop. Are, are the principles that you've explained holding pretty well true for young cattle as well, particularly that internal parasite space? Yeah, Charlotte, they, um, a lot of the principles are the same. We don't know nearly as much about um, the, the parasites in cattle in New Zealand as we do in the sheep, um, but the principles are the same. You would still want to, if they've been drenched before they come into your place, you want to quarantine drench them in. If they're going in there and it's a low worm burden, it's not going to suddenly pick up. So you, you don't have to come into that four weeks and drench them again. So doing the fecal egg count there. Um, and those younger animals will still be quite effective. If we're getting out into the into the autumn, then the fecal egg counts aren't uh, less indicative of the worm burden um, in those calves. 
But yes, the, the principles are similar. Um, and in these situations too, if if you can be grazing these forages with both sheep and cattle in the same rotation, then they eat each other's parasites. And so they help to lower the worm, worm burden in there anyway. And we're seeing that more and more in the um, techno-type systems, even on grass, where when we put cattle and sheep in the same rotation, they both do better. You know, so it's just, just using the um, the ability of those those animals to kill each other's other larvae from each other. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of uh, different opportunities to make this a whole lot more sustainable, this internal parasite space. Hey, I mean, mm. finishing up on that theme of internal parasites, are there any other really key important take-homes for our listeners or pretty well if we follow what you're advising that will we'll overcome a lot of the challenges that you commonly see? Yeah, I'd say if you're buying in stock, Quarantine drench them with either Zolvix Plus or Startet. Um, that's just non-negotiable. Because if we bring resistant worms in this into your farm, we're now looking at changing that farm system because you can't get rid of them. They're going to be there forever, mm. nibbling away at your heels. So doing that, um, you want to know what drenches work on your farm. So doing that faecally count one to two weeks after the drench, or it's termed a drench check, checking the drench, um, is really important to make sure that your drenching is effective, that they have swallowed it, um, or if you're using a pour on, that it's been applied properly and it's actually working. Even if the drench only works at 80%, the animals will still improve their growth rates, but it won't be as good as it should be. Um, and the, the practice of, of drenching, you know, drenching's not an easy job to do. It, it needs to be done correctly to every animal. And so we should be taking our time Mix the drum well, um, tip it on its head and give it a good shake. Make sure you set the dose rate of the drench gun to the weight of the heaviest animal. So we're going to overdose 99.9% .9 of the mob, but we need to do that to make sure we're getting a full dose in all the animals. And then making sure that the gun actually delivers um, the dose it's supposed to. The, those things matter. And yeah, enjoy spending time. Um, with with shepherds, shepherdesses, farm workers, you know, and going through vaccination technique, drenching technique, and just realizing quite often these people actually haven't been shown just how important um, their role is in making sure these products are ad administered properly. Yeah, that's a really good wrap up and uh, a lot for people to take away from this, Andrew. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge in this area. But look, um, Andrew, you've been very kind with your time today. We'll, we'll look to wrap this up. But I think the take home here is that, Andrew, you're uh, an amazing resource uh, for us to have here in New Zealand and can't thank you enough for that. And, uh, you know, running courses at Massey and all the like for extending some mm. of this messaging about around animal well-being uh, and animal health. But hope you can join us again very soon, Andrew. Um, it's been great to have you here and, and thanks to both yourself and, and your employer, PGG Rights and Rural Supplies, for sparing uh, you away from your busy diary this afternoon. And most importantly, thanks to the listeners for, for joining in today and uh, and on behalf of also our sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds. So look, we hope you can uh, join us again very soon for our next podcast talking all about uh, ruminant nutrition and animal health. But in the meantime, uh, whatever you've been doing while you've been listening into us today, hope you have a fabulous day out there and we'll catch up again soon. Cheers.